Hello. Yeah, hi. Here we are. Hi. Okay, so we're going to do um, a little yeah. intro and then, and, then, and then introduce you, and then we'll get into the conversation. How long do you want to go? It's a half an hour. No, that's too much. Uh, too much? Do you have ad breaks? No, no, we're just straight. No. Okay, so uh, go to 120 if that's all right with you. 120, I mean time, 20 after 1? I mean like only talk to you for 20 minutes? Okay. Okay, thank you. Okay, so... The fantastic and flexible new Westport Library presents Oh Brother, Not Another Podcast with me, Trace Burroughs. And me, Migs Burroughs. So today, uh, we're having a great guest, Dick Morris, who's one of the best-known political consultants in the country. He was Bill Clinton's consultant for 20 years and piloted him to a re-election victory in 1996. He and his wife of 42 years, attorney Eileen McGann, work closely together and they've written over 20 books. Uh, Dick has also been the consultant for many uh, presidents and prime ministers of other countries, including Argentina, Uruguay, Spain, Poland, and several others. As well, he has directed successful campaigns of more than 20 senators and governors. He worked for Fox News from 1998 to 2012 and appeared on the show many, many times. He currently tapes a daily short video on current events that he posts on his website with over 300,000 subscribers. Uh, Time magazine uh, named him the most influential private citizen in America. Oh. Yeah. And we're talking to him. Now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> welcome. Yeah, welcome, Dick. You and I have houses a few yards apart in Connecticut. Uh, we're neighbors, basically. Right. Never met, but I look forward to meeting you. Sure, yeah. So let me ask you, um, first off, how did you get into the consulting business? Well, uh, I got into politics uh, as a kid. Uh, I wrote a book that you can order on Amazon, uh, not in bookstores, but on Amazon, called uh, Fifty Shades of Politics. That's a brand new book that's kind of autobiographic and answers that question in some detail. I became a consultant within the world of politics because I wanted to have nine lives. Uh, I didn't want to just be a candidate and run and die uh, or win. Uh, I wanted to have nine lives to live. And as a consultant, I'm, you know, somewhere around six and a half. (laughs) (laughs) You You got a few left. I have a, I'm fascinated, you know, um, your concept of triangulation, um, right. which I've always, I mean, I'm not a political junkie or anything. I mean, obviously, I follow things and I've got my own. I'm a registered independent. But it just seems so, not just in this era, but it, it's so monolithic to have, oh, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, yep. and put everyone in a box. And so yep. if you say what party you're in, then I automatically know everything you believe in and yep. going to vote on. And Which is absurd. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, you're right. You know, you go to a restaurant and they tell you, what would you like for lunch? And you give them your order and they say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
you can't have the uh, smoked salmon appetizer <laughs> unless you also have you know, right. dinner. So they come into you and they're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't have a pro-life first course uh, if you're in favor, if you're opposed to the Trump tax cut yeah. for your main course. And you can't have a, a gun control uh, exactly. dessert uh, because of your first course. Uh, I think that people want to order a la carte. And um, the concept of triangulation really is that you take these incredibly polarizing issues and you find the stuff on each side that everybody believes is reasonable and you adopt it. And you combine those into a third position that's kind of above the other two. In the center, but not, not split the difference. So for example, in the abortion debate these days, I would say, look, everybody who has a brain agrees that you can't uh, ask a person to uh, not have an abortion after a fetal heartbeat. Mm. Um, you know, they understand that. Six weeks is not enough time. Hardly know you're pregnant. Right. On the other hand, everyone with a conscience would say, don't kill a baby at delivery. Mm. Don't shoot them in the delivery room. Um, have a limit, uh, you know, maybe have 40, maybe 20 weeks or something like that. But to kill a baby during birth, that's infanticide. Mm -hmm. That's not abortion. So you take those two points of view and you combine them and you come out with a, uh, a program that people can really buy into uh, without going to either of those extremes. And I think that the key to the success of the Clinton presidency was that he did that mm -hmm. on welfare. He said, okay, we, the program's called Aid to Families of Dependent Children, Aid to Mothers, so we have to put daycare and child, and child, child care and job training and, um, and minimum, higher minimum wage and all that stuff in the program. But people are living on welfare for generations, so let's have a five-year time limit and let's require people to work when they're on welfare. If they can't find jobs, assign them to public sector jobs. And uh, it worked beautifully, cut the welfare rolls in half and cut child poverty by a third. The other mm -hmm. political concept in triangulation is that when I was working with Clinton, the Republicans were pressing hard for an agenda of uh, lower taxes and less regulation and uh, a whole range of stuff. Uh, and a balanced budget, uh, and some reason, and, and the stuff that Bill Clinton basically supported. Uh, so I said, what you need to do is to fast forward their agenda, pass it, and then they'll go home and they'll stop bothering you. So he passed a strong anti-crime bill that now is in disrepute because it's worked so well, <laughs> and we're now letting people out of prison, but it set up mandatory sentences because judges had been so terrible in abusing their discretion with slaps on the wrist. Uh, it set up a four-year balanced budget that worked perfectly, and we didn't have a deficit for four years, uh, and, it, uh, and it reformed welfare and so on. And we said, okay, pass that agenda, that the Republicans passionately want, but the Democrats also would support. And the Republicans will go home and stop bothering you. They'll find another <laughs> right. house to haunt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it worked really well. Yeah, it just seems so common sense. I mean, I think this is maybe a weird metaphor, but, you know, now there's a whole thing of being, you know, I'm not a man, I'm not a woman, I'm gender fluid. Well, can't you be politically fluid? I mean, you know. Yeah, sure. Sure. And, and I think that the, uh, 
the point is that we we get locked into these extremes and the reason we do is goes back to the way politics the process of getting elected has changed it used to be that you raised all the money to win an election yourself and your friends your relatives your family your business associates all got their arms twisted and donated money to you now most of the money comes from national political committees that go around and say, hey, give me $200,000 and I will distribute 20000 to each of the five candidates mm. I, the committee, want to fund. And um, the result, and, and therefore the money flows into certain key races, which is good for the party. But the problem is that if, if to get that money, you need to go to extremes. Because I'm not going to give Bob money because I like him. Mm. I'm a fanatic on abortion. So I'm going to only give him money if he's a straight pro-lifer down the road or the other side pro-choice if it's a Democrat. And the result is that candidates get locked into oh. really crazy oh. extremist positions. Oh, right. Yeah, so is, is that the only reason why we have this like basic two-party system nowadays is because of this uh, money-raising issue? No, no. The other is reapportionment. Um, there used to be uh, a lot of swing districts in the country that could go one way or the other. And the Democrats and the Republicans in almost every state got together and cut a political deal and said, look, we have 10 congressional seats and five are Democrat, five are Republican. Now, of the five of each party, four of them, we can make safe seats for that party. We'll put every living Republican into one of the four, and we'll put every living Democrat into one of the Democratic four. And then we'll have two seats we can fight over each year. But eight seats are givens. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the number of swing seats in the Congress has declined from about 120 to about 30 or 40. And in those seats, the voter, the candidates vie for the votes of the middle, the centrist, the people who are not D's or R's. But in all the other seats, the general election is a given. They're going to beat the other party. But what's not given is the primary. And in the Democratic Party, you're going to have left-wing extremists, so-called progressives like, you know, Cortez, challenging the incumbent Democrat. And in Republican districts, you're going to have pro-life crazies and white supremacists and all that crap opposing the Republican candidate. So the candidate the Democrat and the Republican have to worry about is their primary opponent. And the result is you move to the left or to the right. If you're a Democrat and you want to fence off the likes of uh, Cortez, Alexandra Cortez, running against you, you better move to the left. Mm. And if you're a Republican, you don't want a strong pro-life opponent, you better move to the right. And that's why the parties have become so horribly polarized. Yeah. So is, so is politics, I mean, from your vantage point, do you, do you see it as a, is it an art or a science or a little bit of both? Or, I mean, you learned it well, at your war. father's knee, right? I mean, you kind of grew up with yeah. this. It's, it's a war, and uh, and it combines both art and science. Uh, and uh, and it, the wonderful thing about it is it's how we move ahead as a country, mm. which is that uh, it's the old Descartesian concept. You have a thesis, an antithesis, and then somebody comes up with a synthesis, mm. which is really what triangulation is about. And that, that then has an antithesis, 
who runs against it. And we see a perfect example of that with Donald Trump in this trade war stuff. The traditional position of the Republican Party is free trade. And of the Democratic Party is no free trade, tariffs to protect union workers and their jobs. So Trump comes along and he says, uh, I want to get to free trade, but to have that, I want to eliminate all of these tariffs and barriers that other countries are setting up against us. And we're largely not doing it to them, but they're doing it to us. And therefore, we will start doing it to them until they stop what they're doing to us. And he's doing that to China, and he's being very aggressive about that and very successful. Uh, and that creates a new paradigm, a new position, and it's how our politics moves ahead. One of the things Trump just did that I love, I, I love Trump, is that in the uh, Mexican trade deal that's replacing NAFTA and, and Canada's trade deal, he says that to qualify for tariff-free status, 45% of the ingredients of the elements in your product, in your car, mm. must be made in the U.S., Canada, or Mexico by workers who average $16 an hour or more. Mm. It's the first time there's ever been an incentive to raise wages built into a trade bill. Usually there's a race to the bottom. Yeah. And it incentivizes the cheapest product. <laughs> and Trump has broken incredible new ground with that. And that's the kind of stuff you can, and that's really triangulation. It's taking Bernie Sanders' thunder and, uh, and, and putting it for the Republican Party. And why are the Republicans so up in arms about Mexico now? I mean, of all. Well, because Trump has developed a split in the Republican Party between the country clubbers and the Tea Partiers. Uh, the Tea Partiers are largely small businessmen, individual entrepreneurs, um, homeschoolers, uh, people who um, who are not rich. Uh, it's sort of the Rotary Club against the Country Club, and uh, the the other wing of the party are the corporate executives, and they oppose the tariffs on Mexico because they want the cheap ingredients to put into their products in the supply chain. But uh, the Rotary Club types want the tariffs because they don't want immigration and they don't want cheap products flooding the country. The key to the immigration issue is that it's the only way you can raise wages in the United States. Otherwise, it's constantly a race to the bottom. But if you stop several million people who are willing to work for almost nothing from coming into the country each year, mm. You don't have that downward pressure on wages. And people who don't have huge skills but can do landscaping and restaurant work and work in hotels, hospitality, those kinds of fields that immigrants do, those jobs instead will go to Americans and legal immigrants. And because that supply is limited, the wages are going to go up. Mm. And you're going to find people can make a middle class living doing those jobs. But as long as you allow immigration to come in unimpeded, it'll drive jobs down, drive the wages down, and it'll be impossible to sustain a middle-class existence doing that stuff. Um, yeah, it's such a layered uh, system. Anyway, so, I have a question, question for you. It's a little off the track, what we're talking about. So what is the deep state? Because I don't really have a, a good understanding of that. It's the permanent government. It's the, particularly in the national security field, uh, that pays no attention to political party or to the administration, 
it conceives that it has a role and a policy and objectives and it knows better than the people. And it's not susceptible to change based on the nature of the political administration. And they have certain goals and certain norms that they're headed toward. The most significant of them is basically a system of global governance. Uh, because they're basically diplomats. They get along with other countries, with the diplomats of other countries, and their goal is to minimize confrontation, maximize cooperation, and uh, in the process, they're quite willing to shed the interests of the average American, particularly the low-income, blue-collar worker, who nobody much cares about because they're not visible, they're not in country clubs, they're not the people you rub shoulders with, and uh, they're not even the people that finance campaigns. So the deep state doesn't much care about what they want. What they care about is the international consensus of people just like themselves. And they don't give a damn about democracy. They run the IMF, the Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the United Nations, all of the various agencies, the World Trade Organization. They run those, and they run them in the interests of the financial elites on Wall Street, not in the interests of the average worker in the United States or elsewhere. And it's not just in the U.S. where the deep state is running into opposition. It's all over the world. Australia, they just lost the election. The European Parliament uh, elections just voted decisively against the sort of permanent establishment candidates. Britain left Brexit. I was one of the consultants that worked on that mm. to protest the rule of these types. We have a worldwide financial governance system, but we have and a worldwide economic governance system, the G8 and so on. But we have no global democracy. Mm. Most of the countries involved are not democratic at all. They're, they're dictatorships. And there is no global way for the opinion and the will and the needs of the people to be felt. And the result is that globally we're losing democracy and becoming an aristocracy or an oligarchy. And that really is what the deep state is. Mm -hmm. now, is it covert? It sounds covert. I mean, is this really a... Well, for the most part it is, because mm. if you were out in public, you'd be rejected. When I worked for Clinton, the biggest problem we had was getting our own bureaucracy to approve the stuff we wanted to do. They would always say no, and they'd always come up with a reason for no. And they didn't care a hoot that we were elected and they weren't. Mm. Um, their whole view was, we're the real people who look at the merits and make the decision on the merits, you're just a politician hawking votes. Hmm. So we're not going to listen to you. We're going to do what we think is right. Hmm. So listen, i got to go. Let's do one more. Oh, you want, um, are you familiar, Dick, with uh, QAnon? What is that? Q, the letter Q, Anon, like A-N-O-N. It's a, apparently it's this, they've been turning out at Trump rallies and you know they're they're on a an extreme one of those extremist groups but apparently there's a lot of yeah. them that believe that all yeah. democrats are pedophiles and, and you know just bizarro yeah. stuff anyway. no i'm not oh, okay. you're gonna have types like that in both parties yeah it's silly to type the party is that sure uh, yeah. any more than you could say that all democrats are you know or <laughs> fishermen or anything <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, guys. Yeah, thank Welcome you very much. How long have you lived here? Uh, ten years. 
Yeah. Oh, great. We both grew up I've in Westport. Here. Yeah. Oh, good. I've lived here 40 years. Wow. Um, I'll tell you something about Westport you don't know. Yeah. Um, Westport developed as a utopian socialist community for Jews. Seriously? Uh, wow. It was when in Indiana and other places, Robert Owens and, and Henry Thoreau were setting up things like Walden Pond, which were idealistic, utopian socialist communities. And Westport was of that ilk. Only for Jews. And starting Motors, how far back? Uh, well, founded around 1840. Most of right. the other towns on the Long Island Sound were founded in 1700 or something. Yeah. No, we were chartered in 1835, so that fits in. Yeah. So, so that was the, oh, yeah. that's interesting. That's fascinating. We're, okay, guys. You take care and yeah. enjoy the hood. Thank you okay, very thanks. much. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Dick Morris. Um... That was a lot of interesting stuff there. That was fascinating. I'm curious. How did you, what's for the people listening? How did you get in touch with Dick Morris? How do you? Well, um, I live in Reading, and um, I don't know how I found out. He lives down the street from me, like you know, like ten houses down. Um, and somehow along the way, I discovered that he he lived down there, and uh, I sent him, you know, found his website, sent him an email, and asked him if he'd be on our show. I was in. I wonder why I had this short uh, yeah time limit. Give us <laughs> you 10 think more he'd minutes. want to talk more? He didn't even get to plug his website. I was gonna try to lead him right, on. Right. Saying he could plug his I, website. I didn't tell him that you know we're a thirty-minute. I didn't think I had to. You know, I thought like that was the minimum for any show. You know? uh, yeah, it's an odd. Next time I'll say it's thirty minutes. Well, at least we got we, we got, got some good information though, and I mean, he sounds really knowledgeable. Uh, and a, how did you said like he he learned from the at his dad? Well, his father. I mean, I'm part of the, what I read on on his website, and what is it, Dick Morris? Well, you can Google Dick Morris. I'm sure you yeah. can get his website. Um, but I would thought usually those guys like him, that's the first thing out of their mouth is to plug their website. Um, yeah, he, his father was involved in politics, I guess local politics, and and. I guess used to walk with him and talk about politics, and he's just obsessed with it. He says ever since you know he was eight years old or something. I mean, he's just been—that's his life. It's like a musician who starts playing when they're young, and just that's all they do. What I didn't get to ask him, which um, was, you know, he says he loved Trump. You know, yeah, unquote. Yeah. I wanted to ask him. So the fact that you know. Trump lies constantly, and he promotes racism. What, yeah, what are your feelings yeah, about the that? I'm, I'm mistaken. I mean, I hear I hear the speeches myself. I'm not getting that from liberal media. Yeah, I've yeah. seen dozens, hundreds, maybe of Trump speeches. Well, why? How can he back a man, even though he may have so, some pl good political ideas, though I don't think he knows really how to execute them properly? Uh, why he would promote? Yeah, even get behind a guy like that. Simple things like you know the Virginia shootings, and he's playing golf, and he apparently took time out in his sweaty golf clothes to come to the church and pray for 10 minutes and then left you know in his golf cart or something i mean how do you love a guy like that anyway we're probably not supposed to get political <laughs> well, the other thing we i just, did get, I, we just thing, had him on the show yeah that's true yeah um but the other thing i was curious and i'll just put this out there you can ask you know the i know from his website he doesn't believe in this whole collusion thing he said oh that's a non-issue it never happened you know from the Mueller report totally disproved it well my analogy is okay you and i are sitting here and i go 
hey, Trace, do you know anybody that can drive really well, like, you know, kind of a getaway car? And you go, oh, yeah, I know this guy. And then you say, and then I say, oh, how about a guy that's good at uh, uh, disguises? And you go, yeah, yeah, I know a guy. How about a safe cracker? Do you know any safe crackers? And you go, oh, yeah, I think I know a guy that, um, and, and um, how about a costume shop? Is there one nearby? Yeah, a costume. How about some hefty bags? Do you know anywhere we can get hefty bags? <laughs> and then how about, you know, there's a, you know, Webster Bank. Do you think we could get a floor plan for Webster Bank? And then... You drive up to the bank, and then, and then the last minute, maybe the right. doors are locked. Or yeah, something. right. We got there too. Whatever. Yeah. The thing is, I mean, we weren't colluding to rob the bank. Oh, no. Those were just... We were just chit-chatting about, you know stuff i mean you put it all i know it's circumstantial but gee how i would have loved to hear his answer because <laughs> yeah. he might you know he's very yeah he, obviously he's way more into you know how things work but i'd be curious to know you know what his reasoning is for that if, if there's something i haven't thought about before that he would en yeah. enlighten me and i would have liked to get into i know he's apparently turned against clinton i mean hates him now but I, he obviously was with him for a long time and, and what, got him elected and, and why did he turn on him yeah why did he and and what i'm just curious about the clinton charisma you know if that what what his take on that was yeah i mean clinton did come to westport down the street at the international hall and he stayed there apparently, and a lot of people greeted him. Oh, yeah. I didn't see it. I mean, he's right down the street, and I didn't go because the crowds were too big. But uh, people that did see him said it, he was. He'd look you right in the eye. He'd hold your hand warmly and look you right in the eye and go, you know, hi Bob, how are you? You know, I'm glad to meet you. And you felt like you're the only person in yeah, the, yeah, I heard, yeah. that exists. So I, that's a t talent. Whether that's, you know, the basis for being elected. Um, get you in the door um and um you know what else was i going to say about clinton well yeah he oh also that he's such a renowned oh he's going to listen to you, this well maybe he'll call in and answer those questions yeah, maybe I, you call in and dig if you're listening not to the call, tell us we'll call you right yeah uh, even if it's a short interview or but, but he predicted that like um romney would win in a landslide i mean he, well, he, well, he, that's the thing yeah, yeah. He, you know so he didn't get them all right yeah and so what led to those kind of misinterpretations but no very astute obviously yeah and knows it like a chess master I yeah mean, he knows all the pieces and where they go and everything well so we ended there that's a, uh, it's almost a half minutes. hour you know? <laughs> <laughs> stretch this out i don't know if anybody's still listening out there. <laughs> is bill harmer still listening <laughs> Well, this is after the fact, or this will be heard way after the fact, but uh, I was at the Book for the Evening last night where Frederick Chu played the piano. Oh, and I was, when that was. a big was. fundraising event. Just phenomenal. I mean, if you haven't been to the Westport Library, this is the gem of all gems of a space, community center, performance space. We're going to be doing our podcast from there. Eventually, you know, there'll be video, room maker space. 24/7 access to certain parts of the library. So you can go three in the morning. You can go in and. So he was on. Who was on the big screen behind? Uh, Frederick Chu is the pianist yeah. who, who played. So he was being honored. Yeah. He was the honoree, and they had two pianos, two giant Yamaha pianos. Giant, you know. <laughs> grand. I, mean, grand. I think grand is the word. <laughs> two grand. Yeah. Humongous. <laughs> Humongous. <laughs> uh, but the most astounding thing at the end, the last thing he played, it, he had pre-recorded 
this, I don't know the name of the piece, but this classical piece, a month ago, he pre-recorded it on this Yamaha Disclavier, which is a piano that was like a, a very uh, cutting-edge uh, player piano, and he recorded a piece on it, and then it was played back on the big screen, and then in live in person, he played the other, the duet part. Oh. So he played a duet with himself. It was phenomenal. And, and, and the, the other piano, the keys moved just like a player piano. Oh. So you could see him on screen in the video of him making that recording, but the piano on stage was mimicking his every keystroke and foot pedal. So you could see the keys moving cool. like an invisible man playing. You could see him on screen playing and then him on stage playing the other part. So hats off to Frederick Chu, who's just an amazing, phenomenal concert pianist. And um, to Bill Harmer in the library, where we are, and so grateful to be here. So can't wait for the ribbon cutting. Yeah, the ribbon cutting. If you haven't, if this may be, we don't know when this will broadcast, June 23rd. So you either been there and know how great it is or if you haven't go there 11 to 4 june 23rd okay over and over <laughs> okay <laughs>